Now just to catch you up to speed, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at Acts, uh, we understand from the first few verses of Acts that Luke has written a, a two-volume set, the Gospel of Luke, and then the Acts of the Apostles. And he says that in his first volume, uh, or in this volume, uh, he, he talks about all that Jesus began to do and teach, or in the, in the Gospel of Luke. All that Jesus began to do and teach. And the way that he expresses that uh, leads us to the conclusion that the Gospel of Luke was all that Jesus began to do and teach. The Acts of the Apostles is all that Jesus continued to do and to teach after he ascended to heaven. And we believe that Jesus is continuing to do and teach even today. And so we can look at the work that was going on in the early church and know that that work is still going on here today in our world. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the bulk of chapter 2. Directly preceding the verses we are studying today is a record of the sermon that Peter preached on Pentecost. And our reading picks up in the middle of that action as the people uh, respond to this sermon that Peter, Peter has preached. And it tells us there in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just to pause in our reading for a moment, you'll notice there that he speaks of being saved. And he's already mentioned that back in verse 21. He quotes the prophet Joel where it says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then here in verse 40, He says, save yourself from this crooked generation. He's interested in salvation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, we use that term generation. A generation is a whole culture living at that time that has certain characteristics, values, mindsets, and behaviors. We talk uh, about uh, different generations today. We talk about the baby boomer generation. We talk about uh, Generation X. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Generation Xer. I think it's everybody that was born after 1964 or so, 65. And yes, I am that old. I know it's hard to believe. We talk about the greatest generation, those people who were born during World War II or in that era, that, that era of people, or young people today who are called Millennials or Generation Y. All these uh, generations have certain characteristics, certain, a certain uh, set of values, a certain mindset that they follow, and of course that, that causes them to have certain behaviors. We think of the greatest generation, these people who, who valued honor, and they went to war and fought for our country, for example. That their mindset, their values dictated their behavior. 
Well, when Peter speaks of this crooked generation, he is referring to the sinful values, a mindset, and behavior of the culture which surrounded them at the time. The crooked generation. And Peter is exhorting them to call upon the, the Lord so that they can be saved. Now, not, not only saved from an eternity of torment and separation from God in hell, which is how people uh, talk about it often in our day and time, but saved from this generation, from the sinful world, their sinful culture in which they live, their, their sinful thought patterns and, and behavior patterns. Because you see, salvation is more than just fire insurance. It's more than that. Salvation is freedom from bondage to sin and, and the effects of sin. Jesus Christ not only saves you from an eternity separated from God, but saves you now from sin so that you can be holy. He, the process has begun uh, of making you holy. That's what we call sanctification. Christ has saved you to recover that which was lost in the Garden of Eden when mankind rebelled against God and, and chose rather to listen to the lies of the devil rather than to God. And that has been our tendency ever since. We would rather go against God and go in the opposite direction from God. We have that tendency. It's like a car that pulls to the left. You know, it just wants to go that way. We want to go that way, even stronger than a, than a car that's, that's misaligned. People have a tendency to think that sinful behavior is what makes their lives worth living. Uh, they, 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 we, all of us, have a propensity to believe that true freedom is found in sinful behavior. If I can do what I want to do, if I can satisfy my flesh, then that means I'm truly free. If I can do whatever I want without anyone judging me, that's freedom. But that is wrong thinking. True freedom is freedom from sin. Sin is bondage. Sin will destroy you. You nor anyone else were not created for sin. We were human humanity was not created to sin. You know, when before sin came in the world, mankind was perfectly happy. Per, in, living in the Garden of Eden in perfection, God provided for all their needs. They they had perfect fellowship with God. There was joy and peace and they had it all, but threw it away. Mankind made the choice to become a slave to sin, to serve it. And we see it reflected in the world. The world is a crooked generation. It is warped. The values, the mindset, the thinking, the behavior of the world is not indicative of what is really real and true and valuable. The world tries to tell us so that this is what's valuable. This is, these, these are the, the values that are pushed on us and the priorities that are given to us. But God is saving us from that, trying to help us escape that mindset, those values, those priorities that will drag us down to that eternal condemnation. See, Jesus Christ came into the world to save us and free us from sin. It's bondage and its effects. When Jesus Christ saves you, he gives you a, a whole new value system. A, a whole new way of thinking. 
a whole different set of behaviors in which you desire to engage. Things that once were important to you are no longer that important, and things which you once never even considered, those things become burning passions for you. It's a complete change. When Jesus saves you, you act differently. You do things you didn't do before, and you stop doing other things, even though some things you once enjoyed doing. When Jesus saves you, he changes your world. The, tra- the trajectory of your life dr- changes dramatically when you become part of his new generation. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. He's creating an entirely new generation. They're saved, they've been saved from this crooked generation. And uh, this new generation is very much unlike the crooked generation in which they were living and the one in which we live today. The church is this new generation. Now, you've heard people claim, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't believe in organized religion. You know, there's some kind of bias against organized religion. I understand why the church is imperfect. You know, we're a work in progress. But if you don't believe in organized religion, then you cannot say that you are a follower of Christ. Because when Christ began his ministry on earth, the first thing he did was organize. He called some people to be his followers. He organized them into a group. And then when he ascended to heaven, he did the same thing again. That's what we're reading about in chapter 2. A church was organized. A community sprang up. A, A community of people who followed and served and loved and worshiped. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus organizes religion. That's what he does. He, he makes churches. And this church is his institution. It's his new generation in the midst of a crooked generation. Now in verse 47 he states that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this new generation was growing. Now the question we want to ask today in the next few minutes, what does this new generation that Christ saved look like? How is it different from the crooked generation in which they then lived? How will Christ's generation today look different than the crooked generation in which we live? Well, look at verse 42 through 47, where Luke describes this new generation for us. We need to ask ourselves this question. Do we look like this? Do we as a church look like this? Or if you're a visitor, does your church look like this? Uh, Do we as individuals look like this. We need not just look at it on an individual level, but on a corporate level as well. It tells us here in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I've gleaned four things out of this. Uh, I could have gleaned a dozen, but I've tried to sum them up into categories for you. What does this new generation look like? First, Jesus' new generation is devoted Verse 42 tells us that they were devoted to some things. They were uh, continuing to do something with intense effort with the possible implication of despite difficulty. 
So even in the midst of difficulty, they were persisting in these things. Four things in particular, the breaking of bread, uh, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They were devoted to these things. They persisted in these things. They valued these things. Which begs the question for us, to what are you devoted? Where do you spend your effort and energy? What do you spend your time doing? That which occupies your mind when you're not thinking of anything else. What is that? You know, when you're in the quiet moments, where does your mind roam? The answer to these questions will reveal what is valuable to you. What is most important to you? We tend to think of those things when we're not thinking of anything else. What was on the first disciples' mind, this this new generation that sprang up in Acts chapter 2, first of all, the apostles' teaching. They were hungry to learn and to grow. Now, the apostles' teaching would be that which the apostles, the, the disciples, were taught by Jesus throughout their time with him when when he... Uh, had his public ministry and called them to himself, but especially the 40 days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension. Acts 1 verse 3 tells us, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God, this new kingdom, this new generation that he was bringing along. And this teaching of the apostles included the Old Testament because that's what Jesus taught them. You can go back to Luke chapter 24 at the very end of of Luke's first volume and it tells us that uh, when he encountered the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it tells us that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is one way of summing up the Old Testament scriptures, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Old Testament is about Jesus. And then the apostles gave us their writings that tells us about Jesus and all that he did. And then later in Luke 24, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Of course, that would be the Old Testament. They understood that it was all about Jesus. This new generation was devoted to the Bible. We can sum it up that way. They valued that. What about you? Do you value the scriptures? Are they important to you? This new generation values God's word. They want to grow in it. They want to learn it. They want to follow it. They find there something important. They were also devoted to the fellowship. They were together. They had a common identity, common values, a common mindset. They were of one heart and one mind. That's another way of expressing it. And they were devoted to one another. You notice the pronouns here in 42 through 47. It's all theys and theirs. It wasn't I or me or he or she or it. It wasn't singular. It was corporate. They were were in a body. They were devoted to one another. See, there are no Lone Ranger Christians in the world. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian all on your own. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. He wasn't exactly the Lone Ranger. He needed some help sometime. But if you're not involved in the life of the local church, then something is missing in your Christianity. It's, it's not like this new generation that Christ is building. So the fellowship was important to them. The breaking of bread. Uh, they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. I, I, there's some dispute whether they're just talking about sitting down to a meal, uh, fellowshipping with one another, or is this specifically talking about the Lord's Supper? I'm going to say that I've come down on the, that it's about the Lord's Supper because there's a pro, there's a there's an article in front of it, a, a the 
breaking of the bread. So in other words, they were committed to remembering Christ. They were committed to the gospel. They were rehearsing the implications of Christ's death for their lives. You know, what, what, did that, what does that mean that Christ died for sinners? Because that's what we do. We contemplate the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ when we go to the Lord's table. It can mean, of course, yes, that they were just devoted to eating together, which is important as well. And it was, it was uh, even more significant in that, their day than it was in ours. People ate together. That was a symbol of identifying with a person. That's why Jesus was often criticized for eating with, with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes because that said, I identify with that person. I'm friends with that person. I'm in fellowship with that person. So they were devoted to that, which really goes back to number two, the fellowship. So they were devoted to the gospel. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the, to the apostles' teaching, and they were devoted to prayer. They prayed corporately, together. They prayed as individuals. They persisted in it. You know, we have opportunities for corporate prayer. I'm going to lay the guilt trip down on you. Sunday night, 6 o'clock, come on and pray with us. We have a small group that prays. I'd love to see more and more people praying together. We have not because we ask not. We want to see the church grow. We want to see Christ's name be proclaimed. Ask Him. Come join us and ask. And I know not everyone can come on Sunday night. Pray in your closet. Pray wherever you are. Pray for the church. Pray for the kingdom of God. Be devoted to it. That's what this new generation looks like. They were devoted to these four things. Secondly, Jesus' new generation is reverent. Verse 43 tells us that awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word there, awe, is fear or reverence. In Hebrews 2, I've given you that passage there in the outline. It tells us, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. That would be the, the disciples. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and very various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There were uh, miracles going on. And the purpose of those miracles was that it uh, showed the listeners who heard the truth of the gospel uh, that uh, it was true. It, it ratified and put an exclamation point on the message that was being proclaimed. Now, you look through the Bible and you'll see that miracles were not distributed evenly throughout the Bible. There were certain times where there were more miracles. You think of the time of the Exodus and Moses. And then the time during uh, Elijah and the prophets right before the exile. God was trying to uh, underscore certain things that he was proclaiming at those times. And then we see a, a flood of miracle, miracles with Jesus and the apostles in that era. And then there are times of uh, not so many miracles. And I think that we're in one of those times. We're not apostles. Uh, it's not likely that we'll have the same number and kind of miracles today as then. But the principle of 43 was that people are shown evidence. They're shown evidence of true apostolic teaching. In other words, lives are changed. Because what, what was it, the miracles? People who were broken by sin physically uh, and otherwise, they were healed. Their lives were changed. As we see lives changed in this kingdom, 
that will fill us with a sense of reverence and awe that God is doing something, and it's very exciting. This new generation in Jesus' day was filled with awe and reverence. But I fear that today the church is filled more with ambivalence than reverence. We're not really revering God. It's just uh, often just playing church. Do we really believe that the gospel can change lives? It would be great to see that happen. And I'm sure when that happened, we would be in awe of it. Well, Jesus' new generation is generous. Verses 44 to 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceedings to all as any had need. In Jesus' new generation, things become less important and people become more important. That's a good thing. Now, this is not an early form of communism. Uh, we can't read uh, verse 44 as, as uh, the disciples uh, forbidding private property to individuals. There are other places in Scripture that tells us, makes it clear that holding private property is valid. You can just flip over two chapters to uh, chapter 5, and you'll see the whole episode with Ananias and Sapphira and uh, them giving land but lying about what exactly they're giving. And Peter's argument to them was that you could have held on to the land. It was yours. You didn't have to give anything at all. See, this was all voluntary giving. But see what happened in this new generation that Christ has created. People got radically generous. They wanted to give to the church. They wanted to share with others. They wanted to, to alleviate suffering. They wanted to, to show the love of Christ in their community. And they did. And it made a deep impression upon the people all around them. See, our values are reflected where we spend our money. We spend our money on those things that are important to us. But you look at it, you know, I've heard this, not only our church, but many churches today are struggling financially. And from the looks of the financial statements of many churches, it would seem that the church is way down the list of values that people have today. Helping those in need is way down the list of values. Spreading the good news of salvation is way down the list of people's priorities in this crooked generation in which we live. This new generation that Jesus creates is generous. They share with one another. They're concerned about one another's needs and the hurting and suffering of others. Now finally, Jesus' new generation is content. I struggle with the word to put there. I had joyful to begin with, content, but either way, look at what it says here in verse 46. This is beautiful. It kind of sums up uh, the sense you got when you were around these people who are part of this new generation. Day by day, it tells us. Day by this is this was the practice of their lives. Day by day, attending the temple together, so they were worshiping together, breaking bread in their homes, and I believe this one is talking about just eating together, hanging out together, uh, fellowshipping with one another. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That, that term generous hearts, uh, there really is talking about humility associated with simplicity of life. You know, they received their food that they shared with one another. They were, they were joyful. They had a, had a great amount of joy. 
their lives were not filled with uh, complexity. They, they lived very simple lives. Uh, their priorities were worship and, and the community in which they lived. And their lives were very content and peaceful. It didn't last. They were persecuted for their faith. But even in the midst of their persecution, we see time and time again that they had contentment and peace even in the midst of their suffering. So there's something supernatural going on there that God has done in their hearts. The Lord has provided for them. See, they, they rejoiced in God. They were praising and worshiping Him. They had glad, generous, worshipful hearts filled with joy, peace, and contentment. This was their lives. They didn't have a lot of creature comforts, and they weren't always on the quest for more, more, more. They weren't materialists like we are today. Their priorities had changed. Their values had changed. They were a new generation in the midst of a crooked generation. Well, let me sum this all up. Let's look at it corporately and individually. Do we look like this church as a church? Do we, as a body of believers, an expression of the body of Christ here in Biloxi, Mississippi, do we look like this church? Now think of it individually. Does my life look like this? Does your life look like this? Do you, are you devoted to the Word, to the fellowship, to the church, to the breaking of bread, to the gospel, to prayer? Do you have a generous heart? Do you really have true contentment in your life and joy? Now, you can't manufacture this. Now, this is not me standing up here telling you, look, you need to be devoted to prayer, which I did. You know, I did that earlier. I made you feel guilty. Trying to, at least. Uh, And you need to be devoted to the Bible, which you do need to be that as well. But you can't make it happen by just doing that. You notice what Peter said. All this is a result of what he told them. Now, he did not say, you all need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. No, these are byproducts of something else. These are reflexive actions to something that's happened to them. You know, reflexes, when you go to the doctor and he takes his rubber mallet, or it's really not a mallet, hammer, taps on your knee, you know, and you... Your knee, your leg flops up, testing your reflexes. It's uncontrolled. It just happens. All that I'm describing for you today, this new generation, it happened because something, something happened to them. And that was that they called upon the name of the Lord. That you can't just say, okay, I need to, I need to come to church. I need to start studying my Bible more. I need to pray more. No, the first thing you need to do is repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord. And this is the kind of change that you will see in your life and in the church. Repentance and faith is what we're called to do always. These characteristics are indicative of those who are being saved, those who have called upon the name of the Lord. What would we look like if we all called upon the name of the Lord? What will we look like as individuals? What will we look like as a church? 
It might be very different than what we look like now. So I want to encourage you. Call upon the name of the Lord. Turn from sin. Turn from that slavery. Turn from this crooked generation and be free, truly free. And and allow the Lord to turn you into his new generation. And what happened? What would happen if what happened in Acts 2 happened here in this church? Well, first of all, not only will we see the change, but as a result, the last verse, last part of the verse, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. All the empty spaces would start to fill up in here. And wouldn't that be something? That would fill us with awe and reverence if we saw that. We'd be excited about that. May God do that in our lives. Let's pray.